Um, any of you who are willing to just be praying for me while you're sitting here looking at me, <laughs> I will take it all. Um, this is my first time preaching, and um, that feels significant to me in a lot of ways. And when things feel significant, sometimes I cry. So if I do that, gosh, I'm so sorry. I'm going to try really hard not to. Um, but like Jim said, um, my name's Tessa. I'm here in St. Andrews with my husband, Sam, and we've been here now for about a year at KV, um, and that in itself is a miracle. So see, here it comes. Thank you. <laughs> um, Jesus, help me. Okay. Uh, today I'm going to speak, like Jim said, um, about the next section in our journey through the Gospel of Luke a scene that the church historically calls the transfiguration. In this case, transfiguration is just a big word we use to describe a moment when Jesus gets really bright and glowy. <laughs> it's a word meant to describe a visible change in Jesus's figure or form. And if you've been with us for the last few weeks, you may remember that, I'm gonna kick this a lot, there we go. Um, you may remember that uh, a few characters in Luke chapter 9 have been asking the same question. Who is this Jesus? If you remember, the disciples first ask this question after Jesus calms the storm. And then in the next scene, after hearing the buzz around Jesus' name, Herod asks the same question. And finally, last week, um, we learned that when the scenes continue on in chapter 9, Jesus turns the question back onto the disciples, which is sneaky. And he asks them, who do you say that I am? So today I want to explore how the transfiguration continues to answer the question, who is this Jesus? Um, but before we do, I'm going to have Marie come up and read for us the passage, which you can read from here if you want. So this is taken from Luke chapter 9, uh, verses 28 to 36, if you want to follow along. Now about eight days after these sayings, he took with him Peter and John and James and went up on the mountain to pray. And as he was praying, the appearance of his face was altered and his clothing became dazzling white. And behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure, which he, was about to, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Now Peter and those who were with him were heavy with sleep. But when they became fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men who stood with him. And as the men were parting from him, Peter said to Jesus, Master, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you, and one for Moses, and one for Elijah, not knowing what he said. As he was saying these things, a cloud came and overshadowed them, and they were afraid as they entered the cloud. And a voice came out of the cloud saying, this is my son, my chosen one, listen to him. And when the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone. And they kept silent and told no one in those days anything of what they had seen. Thank you. Is this pretty loud or am I okay? Okay. Okay, great. Loud to me. Um, so 
Thank you. Thanks, Marie. As you can see in Luke 9, 28 through 36, um, we get a picture of a pretty strange event. In it, we witness Jesus and his disciples hike up to the top of a mountain where Jesus begins to literally glow in the midst of prayer. And that's not all. Two figures otherwise lost to history, Moses and Elijah, appear next to Jesus alive, and they're having a conversation with him. And as the disciples try their best to make sense of the already confusing sight, a large cloud comes and overshadows them, surrounds them, which, from which they hear the audible voice of God. Um, I can't sugarcoat this enough. This is pretty bonkers. It's strange, right? Like, that's weird. <laughs> ah. And because the strangeness of this scene, some scholars have gone as far as to suggest that the writers of the Gospels made a mistake. They must have misplaced the transfiguration scene, suggesting that it was an experience of Jesus from after his resurrection, where it would make more sense that he was glowing. Um, and so they wonder whether Matthew, Mark, and Luke, who all include this scene in their Gospels, uh, put it in the wrong spot in their story. For this reason and others, it's often the case that the transfiguration of Jesus plays only a small part, if a part at all, in our understanding of the Gospel, in our understanding of the good news of Jesus and how our lives fit into that good news. As my husband Sam likes to say, I think it's pretty funny, um, and true. We're all pretty good at remembering to talk about all the other shuns in Jesus's life. Jesus's incarnation, his crucifixion, his resurrection, even his ascension. But we don't often include Jesus's transfiguration as one among these other really essential, necessary parts of his life. And yet, even with all of this strangeness, the transfiguration of Jesus plays a really crucial role in the Gospel of Luke. And in spite of the suggestion that it doesn't fit into the story all that well, it's actually the case that Luke chooses the placement of the transfiguration in his gospel with immense purpose. In the introduction to his gospel in Luke 1, 1 through 4, which I, we're not going to have any of my other verses up there, I'm so sorry, so you'll have to trust me. <laughs> I know that's a lot. <laughs> but in Luke... Chapter 1, 1 through 4, Luke claims that his gospel is an orderly account of Jesus' life. It's a not-so-subtle suggestion to the reader to pay attention to the order of his scenes, because he got the order right. Not that it's a competition. And if we look closely at the order of scenes in Luke's gospel, we find that the transfiguration sits at its very center. I don't have time to go into like the diagrams of this. It's really cool and it's fun. Um, and if you're interested in nerding out about the structure of Luke, I would love to have coffee. Like honestly, we should do that. Um, I need people to talk about it with. But to us readers today, the central place of a story may not seem like a big deal. We're used to looking at the end of a story to tell us the meaning or resolution of the whole. But for those who originally wrote the Bible, and read the Bible and other books and stories around that time, it was quite normal or even expected that the author would place a scene at the center of the text that would help the reader make sense of the larger story. So according to Luke, Jesus' transfiguration is immensely important. 
and he puts it at the center of the gospel as a gift to us, a gift to his readers as a way of helping us make sense of the larger story of Jesus. So we're left to wonder then, why the transfiguration? What does this event in Jesus' life have for us that may help us understand what our life with him is all about? I won't be able to answer this question fully here this morning. In all honesty, I'll likely be thinking about this for longer than the next three years, probably for the rest of my life. But I do hope to offer you a sliver of what I've learned so far and help us see Jesus' transfiguration in light of the larger story of the Bible. In order to do so, though, we've got to go back in time a little bit. Actually, a lot of it. Um, If we go back to the Old Testament, all the way back to the beginning, we'll find that it is packed full of mountaintops. And they end up being pretty important to the story of God's people. Throughout the Old Testament, the mountaintop is often a meeting place between God and humanity, the place where God shows up visibly and audibly, the place where he reveals to us who he is and what he has for us. It's a thin place, the mountaintop. In Genesis, um, the mountaintop is where Noah and his family make it through the floodwaters and arrive to safety. It's where God promises new mercies to them and new beginnings. The mountaintop is also where Abraham and Isaac learn that God is not like the pagan gods of their time. He doesn't ask for child sacrifice. He supplies the sacrifice. In Exodus, the mountaintop is where God meets Moses in the form of a burning bush and where Moses becomes the first person ever to know God's name. It is on a later mountaintop where again God meets Moses and shows Moses who he is through the giving of the law and also through um, a request that Moses build a big tent um, in the midst of the community of Israel where God can dwell. In later books like 1 Kings, it's the mountaintop where Elijah too meets God first as a great fire from heaven and then again on another mountain but this time in a soft, still silence. Some believe that these mountaintop meetings stretch as far back as the Garden of Eden, the first mountaintop meeting place, the mound of land that God raised from the waters to be the ideal home for humankind in Genesis, where he met with Adam and Eve and walked with them in the cool of the day, Eden, the garden mountain that humanity ultimately turned away from. Um, the mountain that I think God has been inviting us back to ever since. That was a really quick summary. Um, I hope it was enough to see how the mountain came to represent this place, this place where heaven and earth meet. It's the garden place where God and humanity can, again, for a time, come near to one another. And as the history of Israel in the Old Testament is shaped around these mountains, um, Luke picks that up. And he tells the history that's continued in Jesus around the mountain of transfiguration. So just for a second, I want to return to Moses and his meeting with God on Mount Sinai. I know we just went through a lot of mountains, and I'm going to go back to a mountain. Today's about mountains, turns out. (laughs) Um, But I want to go back to Moses on Mount Sinai because of all the mountains in the Old Testament, this one is the most similar to the transfiguration. And Luke 
works really hard with the language that he chooses when he writes the scene to make sure that his readers see that they're connected, these two scenes, Mount Sinai and the Transfiguration. Mount Sinai is where Moses was given the law. I guess I'm going to summarize it for you now so you'll know. (laughs) Moses' mountaintop story spans Exodus 19 through 40. That's a lot of chapters. So I'm just going to summarize it for you um, and just bring out some points that I think is important for us to see for the transfiguration. After Moses and the Israelites cross the Red Sea, God calls them to Mount Sinai, calls Moses up to the top of Mount Sinai, where a few things happen. Some of these will sound familiar. First, a cloud settles over the mountaintop. And Exodus says that from the cloud, the appearance of the glory of the Lord shines like a bright fire, a devouring fire, actually, from within the cloud. Moses is then asked to enter this cloud where the audible voice of God gives him the blueprints for a great tent, like I said earlier, otherwise known as the tabernacle, a house that God intends to make for himself that will become the dwelling place of God in the midst of Israel. On this mountain, Moses asks to see God's glory. And God says yes, but kind of. Moses isn't allowed to look at God's face. He's only allowed to look at his back, the text says. And there's lots of um, interpretations of what that means. But uh, it at least means he can't look directly at the glory. And glory, you might be able to tell in this sense, doesn't necessarily mean um, God's reputation among men, like his glory, what we think about him. Um, It's something we can look at. It's something that Moses actually couldn't fully look at. In this case, glory is God himself. Um, It is his presence. So later, after Moses just gets to see the back of God's glory, he's hidden behind a rock to keep him protected from, I don't know what would have happened, honestly. The text leaves that to our imagination. Um, But he's hidden behind a rock, and he sees the back of God's glory, the afterglow. And he goes back down the mountain, and later, after Moses descends, the tabernacle is built, the tent. And Exodus describes how the cloud overshadowed it. Keep that word in mind, overshadow. It's Well, you'll remember, I hope, but if not, it will come back up again. So the cloud overshadowed the tabernacle, and the glory of the Lord filled it. Again, when the Bible describes this glory filling the tabernacle, here it's referring to God's presence. The tabernacle is filled with God's self. Commentators describe how the tabernacle was meant to be, at this point now, a portable mountain, a portable Mount Sinai, which is funny to hear, but it makes sense. The tabernacle is now where the presence of God is. And if the mountaintop is the place where God's presence dwells, where he meets with his people, their tabernacle was a stand-in, a space that Israel could carry with them wherever they went, especially when they're navigating the wilderness for many years. They don't have to stay around Mount Sinai. They can take the tabernacle with them, and with that, they can bring God's presence where humanity and God can meet. Later on, Israel will give this once portable tabernacle a permanent location in the temple at Jerusalem. God honors this. He honors this choice. And he fills the tabernacle with his glory. So his presence is there like it was in the tabernacle. 
And the temple, now for many generations, becomes the place where humanity and God can meet. And as the story of Israel continues, we see that over time, this system breaks down a little bit. This is actually a sad part of the story. The temple practices of Israel become corrupted. Injustices increase. Oppression and wealth and idolatry increase. So much so that when we get to the book of Ezekiel, the prophet, again, trust me, I'm sorry, it's not on the screen. He has a vision where he sees the glory of the Lord leave the temple. It's no longer a fitting place for him to dwell. And ever since, it's become a waiting game. For the, a waiting game for God's people, asking when will the glory of the Lord return? Will it ever return? They even build a second temple, hoping that by building it, it will be honored again by the presence of God. But it doesn't show up. So when we get to the Gospels, or in our case, when we get to the Gospel of Luke, and we arrive at this scene where all of those same ingredients are present, or a lot of these ingredients are present, we've got Jesus glowing with glory at the top of a mountain that includes tent-making, an overshadowing cloud, Moses and Elijah. The hope is that when we hear all of these ingredients the stories of old and the history of God's glory residing with humanity starts to ring in the back of our minds. And when they do, the transfiguration of Jesus slowly becomes less strange, just a little bit, like not entirely, but just a little less. Let's walk through the passage together now in light of this larger story. Like Noah and Moses and Elijah and the rest, Peter, James, and John go up a mountain, this time with Jesus in Luke 9, 26. And where the appearance of God's glory that was like a devouring fire on Sinai, on this mountain, it's the appearance of Jesus' face that is altered and his clothes that flash like lightning from the glory that he exudes. Glory that Luke tells us is Jesus' glory. Oh, good, you can see it. This moment is like, it's a woe moment for people who are there, for people who are reading. So for the, the, the disciples who are on the mountain, for those who are reading this story for the first time, for the people that the disciples later tell this story to, this is a really big deal. For those who grew up hearing the stories of those other mountains and worshiping in the temple, it's a big deal because the glory hasn't been seen like this in a really long time. On a mountain like this, no less. Luke isn't subtle here. On the mountain, in the very place where the stories of Israel have taught us to expect God to show up, to expect God's glory to be revealed, we see Jesus. Jesus' glory shines bright just as God's glory did on Mount Sinai. And on this mountain, Jesus is the return of that glory. On this mountain, Jesus is God revealed. What's even crazier is that Luke says the disciples see Jesus' glory. They don't see his glory through a cloud or from behind a rock like Moses, but directly in Jesus' face. Where the face of God historically had to remain hidden, we are now told that the face of God can be seen in Jesus. If you want to know who I am, God says, or at least he shows us through the transfiguration, if you want to know who I am, look at Jesus. If you want to know my name, look at Jesus. 
If you want to know what I'm like, look at Jesus. Look at Jesus and you will see me. Now just imagine for a second that you are Peter in this moment. And you've just been awoken from sleep from a really bright face. Jesus' face. This is in verse 32. And as he processes the glory before him, Peter suggests that they make tents or tabernacles. It's the same word in the Greek. Peter is often criticized for this suggestion. The text itself says he doesn't know what he's saying. But just imagine being in his shoes. His faith community has been waiting for the return of the glory of God for a long time. Peter knows the stories of Israel's history. He likely knows about all of those mountains we've just talked about this morning. I think his suggestion shows that he's starting to see what this all means. He's starting to see that he is, right now, standing in the midst of one of those mountaintop meeting places. After all, the last time this happened, the last time the glory appeared on the top of a mountain, God himself told us to build tents, told Moses to build tents. Part of me wonders if Peter has this in his mind. And he thinks, hey, God said it last time. It's probably a good idea to do now. But even though he doesn't fully know what he's saying, because he doesn't fully understand, Peter is right about this. God's glory is meant to be housed. God desires that his glory dwell with humanity. He always has. But Peter misses that the glory he sees is already in its proper dwelling place, right in front of him, housed in the tabernacle that is Jesus. In a nutshell, it's more than this. But in a nutshell, I think this is the transfiguration. The revelation or the unveiling of Jesus as the place where divine glory dwells. Thankfully, Peter doesn't stay wrong for long. Because in the midst of suggesting that they make tents, he's interrupted by the cloud. Luke tells us in verse 34 that as Peter was saying these things, a cloud overshadows them, and as they enter the cloud, a loud voice says, this is my son, my chosen one, listen to him. This overshadowing is another not-so-subtle nod to the Sinai story in Exodus. Overshadow is a word that is only used four times in the Old Testament. It's only used one of those four times to describe a scene or a historical scene in the narrative. And that one time, it was used to describe the event when the cloud overshadows the tabernacle that we just talked about, filling it with God's presence and creating for Israel a portable mountaintop. The overshadowing cloud is the visual representation of the location of God's glory. I'm sure God's glory is more than a big bright cloud, um, but that is at least a sign that we've been given historically in the Bible to see where it's at. So the cloud shows us where God's presence is. So the cloud that first overshadowed the tabernacle, the cloud that then left the temple when Israel was no longer a fitting home for the Lord, finally returns to Israel on the mountain described in Luke 9. And this time... Luke says, it overshadows them. It's nondescript. People wonder a lot about who the them is. Um, but Luke, of all of the Gospels, seems the most clear that it's all of them on the mountain. The disciples included 
the disciples now stand in the position where the tabernacle once stood, under the overshadowing cloud. Friends, I believe the location of this cloud shows us that the disciples of Jesus are intended to be filled with God's glory too. The disciples of Jesus are invited to become portable mountaintops, tabernacles, whatever you want to call it. That like Jesus, because of Jesus, the meeting place between God and humanity, the thin place, gets to be within us. I told you this might happen. As the blueprints of the tabernacle were first revealed on Sinai, now on the Transfiguration Mountain, Jesus himself is revealed as the new blueprint of the tabernacle. Jesus is the image of what we are being built into. As Peter himself will describe later in 1 Peter 2.5, he gets it right this time. He says in 1 Peter 2.5, we are being built up brick by brick into a spiritual house for the Lord. That is our transfiguration. So we ask again, who is this Jesus? At the center of Luke's gospel, the transfiguration is sure to show that Jesus is the same God who was revealed on all of those other mountaintops. He is the one we look to in order to see who God is. And he's the one we look to in order to see who we are intended to be. Listen, friends, you may have heard it said that God's work through Jesus is out to restore glory to himself. Glory that somehow was threatened when humanity turned away from him in the garden. And whether or not that's true, I don't know, maybe you haven't heard that said. But I think the story of God on the mountain from Eden to the transfiguration helps us see that the true tragedy of Eden was that God always delighted in being generous with his glory. He's always wanted to give it. He can't lose it. It's his. When it's yours and you've got it all, all you can do then is share it. He's always intended that we become a dwelling place for his presence. But in our turning away from him, we became incapable of housing that glory. Our ability to be united to God in glory, that is what he's out to restore. So God himself comes after us in the person of Jesus, and alongside his living and dying and rising, Jesus is transfigured so that we might follow him into it and be remade and restored into a house fitting for the Lord. And though we may not all be glowing, at least not yet, our transfiguration has already begun. And Jesus' transfiguration is a promise that those who are in Jesus will one day be revealed as their true self, as the proper and long-hoped-for home for God's presence. If you're interested in taking Jesus up on that promise, um, Jim's going to come up in just a second, and he's going to show you how you can pray with someone this morning. But before then, I'm just going to pray for us, and thank you so much for listening.
Jesus, thank you for this place, for KV, and that it's filled with a bunch of portable mountaintops. Thank you that when we meet one another, we meet Jesus. So I pray that you would overshadow this place. And that with that overshadowing, your glory would come. We thank you so much that you are a generous God who shares his glory. Transfigure us, please.